Good day and welcome to Letters and Politics. I'm Mitch Jezerich. Today we're going to be in conversation about the East India Company. The East India Company was a corporation that was run out of a modest building in London. It existed between 1599 and 1857, a 250-year-plus span in which the corporation would help lead to Great Britain becoming a colonial power in the eastern portion of the world and also launch an epoch of corporate power. My guest for this conversation is William Dalrymple. William Dalrymple is a historian and a writer, and he's the author of the book, The Anarchy, The East India Company, Corporate Violence, and the Pillage of an Empire. He joins me over Zoom. William Dalrymple, it is a great pleasure to welcome you back to this radio program. Thank you so much, Mitch. Very good to see you again. Good to see you, sir. East India Company is born in 1599. Is this the birth of the modern-day corporation? Not quite, uh, almost. Uh, there are a few um, joint stock corporations that precede this. The first is uh, about uh, 60 years earlier, 1524, the Muscovy Company is formed uh, in London uh, to trade with Moscow. Uh, Moscow. Uh, and this was a, a sort of fur trading. Uh, they dealt in sable and, and goods like that. And there are a couple of other small corporations formed. But the East India Company is really the first big multinational corporation in that it, it's one that begins to straddle the globe. Uh, and out of this office in London that controlled not just colonial interests in uh, uh, India, uh, across uh, as far as Hong Kong, uh, but the, tr uh, the tea for, uh, gathered in Hong Kong is, of course, then sold in America, which is where the, uh, the Boston Tea Party comes in. Uh, it's East India Company tea that's dumped at the beginning of the American Revolution. So this is partly an American story. And they knew and about the, the East India Company. It had a reputation by 1776. They, they were deeply frightened of it. The East India Company had just been exposed. There'd been a whole lot of whistleblowing going on uh, immediately before the revolution. And the fact that one third of the population of Bengal had starved to death under company uh, violence and, uh, and failure to govern um, was something that had broken in London uh, in sort of 1772, 1773. Uh, so in the immediate uh, 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 period before uh, the Boston Tea Party. And there was an awful lot of stuff coming through to Massachusetts in the uh, form of periodicals like the Spectator and the Gentleman's Magazine, which were being avidly read uh, on the East Coast of America. Uh, and there's an awful lot of writing which um, doesn't make it often into uh, in, into the modern historical version of, of, of why the revolution took place. But uh, there was clear fear in the Americas that East India Company, having finished with Bengal and, and India, uh, would be let loose uh, in all its power and corruption uh, on the Americas. Uh, and um, uh, the book contains some some um, uh, detailed tracks written uh, in the in the run up to the Boston Tea Party, uh, when people are really genuinely afraid that the East India Company is going to be uh, allowed to uh, run a sort of corporate tyranny uh, in the in the Americas. Um, and it's a very very interesting part of the whole story. These... What, I think we should perhaps explain before we say anything else about what a joint stock corporation means at this time. You're coming out of a period when um, business is largely controlled by guilds. So you have wool guilds and, uh, and guilds that deal in leather goods or uh, haberdashers or so on. Uh, and these are professional bodies of people that work inside a particular trade. So all the wool merchants will gather their 
their goods and their trade, and they might sort of uh, <coughs> pool it, go and uh, sell it in Brussels or do some joint corp uh, corporate activity. Where a joint stock corporation is different is that outside investors who've got nothing to do with the executive running of the company can put in their money in return for a share of the profits. And this means that these uh, new joint stock corporations uh, can have capital bases which are infinitely larger than anything that exists in the Middle East, sorry, the Middle Ages. So, so if you were a, a merchant's guild in Suffolk, you might actually be quite wealthy enough to build some gorgeous uh, guild halls which still survive in, in various provincial towns in, in uh, East Anglia and so on. Uh, but the new corporations... Uh, were you know cutting edge financial instruments that allowed people to gather often quite small donations from from small time shopkeepers and so on putting in five pounds and ten pounds up to the Lord Mayor of London investing two or three thousand pounds um, and together they were able to buy ships supplies and crucially weapons because this was an armed trade and from the beginning the East India Company uh, had armed guards and cannons on its ships. Uh, and what we see in due course, and this is in a sense the point of the book, is that, that those private security guards transform into uh, initially, initially a small but very effective military force, but ultimately the largest army in Asia. Uh, and in 1800, just as Britain is rearming to take on Napoleon, the British army has 100,000 men uh, under the crown. But the East India Company army in India has two. 100,000 men the same year. Uh, it is literally the double the size of the uh, of the British Army. So the equivalent today would be Tesla with nuclear weapons or Facebook with rockets or, I don't know, Microsoft with submarines. Um, and this is what made it such a, a terrifying instrument, because while it starts off as a, you know, a recognizable beast, a, a trading company that, you know, uh, gathers money in one place, sails over to the other side of the road, buys goods, and then sails back and sells them for profit. Um, quite soon into its uh, history, the East India Company is actually conquering chunks of territory. Uh, and uh, uh, what you find in India is that the East India Company, by 1800, has conquered the entire uh, subcontinent south of the Himalayas. Uh, and uh, this is not just some peripheral exotic land sort of, you know, somewhere in, in the East. Uh, in the 18th century, the East India Company is, sorry, in the 18th century, the uh, Mughal Empire is the richest power in the globe, producing about a quarter of world GDP. Today, when we think of the Mughals, if people think of them at all, we think of the Taj Mahal and uh, beautiful women and dancing girls in, in gilt palaces and so on. But, you know, as with all great empires, all that money comes from uh, somewhere. And, and in this case, it comes from particularly the textile trade. The Mughals had a spectacular uh, textile tradition and they, they make beautiful silks and, and beautiful embroideries and, and gorgeous cloth. But they also make the, the best cloth in the world very, very cheaply, uh, simple white cotton cloth, which they export all over the globe. Uh, and, the, and, and they don't have their own navy. They use the East India Company's navy to do so. So by you know, the, the mid uh, or nearly the 18th century, you have deindustrialization in Mexico. Uh, because uh, of the sheer quantity of, uh, uh, of cheap Indian cloth being imported from Mughal India by the East India Company. You write this in your book, The Anarchy, quote, We still talk about the British conquering India, but that phrase disguises a more sinister reality. 
It was not the British government that began seizing great chunks of India in the mid-18th century, but a dangerously unregulated private company headquartered in one small office, five windows wide, in London. This is interesting to me because, as you write there, we do think of Great Britain's colonization of India as being from the state itself. But, and that would eventually happen after, the, after I guess, oh. what, the East India Company is then nationalized in 1857 or around there. Uh, and that's, then the, a, that's a complicated story because uh, it starts off as this completely libertarian free market uh, organization without any government control at all. Uh, all it has is a government charter, uh, which it pays for, and then off it goes and, and does more or less what it wants. It also has the right to issue its own passport, so you can't actually get to India legally. Uh, without coming in an East India Company vessel or being and getting an East India Company passport, so you know there's no kind of you know investigative reporting going on uh, in in the in the kind of Tudor press or something with uh, 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 you know what these people are getting up to and, and and the misbehavior and the looting and the pillage that's going on, uh, and, and it's 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 only when things get really bad that whistle whistleblowers within the company start exposing what's going on and the massive scale. Uh, of the looting and asset stripping. Looting, incidentally, is, of course, an Indian word. Uh, Lutna means to plunder. Uh, and um, it enters the English language at this time to describe the activities of the East India Company, which, you know, does what any company would do. It, you know, it, it, it exists. The DNA of a company is to make maximum profits for its shareholders and its directors. Uh, and often that's done by asset stripping um, uh, areas that you've, you, you, you've bought or conquered. Uh, and the East India Company just takes over state by state what had been the Mughal Empire. The Mughal Empire, this vast and incredibly sophisticated empire running from Bengal to Gujarat, from Afghanistan, from Kabul as the northern capital, right down to southern India. This great chunk of the world is ruled by the Mughals. And at that time, the company can do business, but it can't possibly dream of conquering anywhere. But when the Mughal Empire breaks up in the mid-18th century, and gives way to civil war. That's the moment that the company suddenly realizes that it can pick off these small successor states, uh, state by state. And they introduce, this is the crucial thing, they introduce amazing new European military technology that's just been proved on the battlefields of Flanders by Frederick the Great of Prussia. Uh, and um, Frederick the Great, particularly in the, uh, in the war of the Austrian succession, uh, has a whole lot of new uh, military techniques. File firing by uh, by muskets, when that's when all those guys line up, uh, kneel down, fire at once, and then the guys who've been loading behind them replace them, kneel down, and they fire. And this, in the 18th century, is, is, is extraordinary new firepower, plus horse artillery, plus 18th century developments in ballistics. And this stuff can blow a hole in any Mughal cavalry army. Uh, and so the company can pick off these small provincial armies that replace the Mughal Empire one by one using technology that has never been seen before in India. Uh, they can also, they realize very quickly that in this disunity and in this uh, chaos, which is anarchy, which follows uh, the breakup of the Mughal Empire, uh, that they can borrow money from Indian moneylenders. They don't even have to import the money from Europe. They can just do a deal, financier to financier, uh, with the local bankers. And the local bankers love the company because, you know, it may loot, pillage and do all sorts of terrible things, but it knows about commercial contracts. It repays its debts on time with interest uh, and uh, it knows how to do business. So 
what you find is that a very, very small number of troops, sorry, of, sorry, of, of white troops, um, officer a very large number of Indian sepoys paid for by uh, Indian bankers and controlled from London by, again, an, an office that is, as, as late as the mid-18th century often has as little as 35 people in it. Uh, so it's an extraordinary thing, the skeleton stuff that pull off one of the great corporate acts of violence in world history, which is the, the looting, pillage, conquest and asset stripping of Mughal India. It is interesting because the Mughal Empire, which is an Islamic empire, as you mentioned, is the richest empire of, of all the world. Europeans, and specifically India, uh, the English, are not necessarily seen as an advanced people. In fact, are seen quite quite the opposite as people that are behind the times. And yet, here they come and and they still conquer what was the most powerful empire in the world it, at the time. It's extraordinary the the difference. I mean, when the company is founded in eighteen hundred, the Mughal Empire is at its peak. Uh, it has a million soldiers under arms, and it's producing a quarter of the world's GDP. Britain, at the same stage, is producing, or England at least, because Britain hasn't even been formed yet. Just England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales as separate countries. But, but uh, uh, England is producing about 7% of the world's GDP at the time. The Mughals are producing 40%. And then the other, the other big uh, producer, of course, is Ming China. So Ming China and Mughal India, these two massive Asian powers, while the Europeans are just, you know, uh, are, are child play in comparison to this. Uh, but by the mid-18th century, the tables are turning. The Europeans have got joint stock corporations, advanced banking facilities. They can raise capital very quickly. Uh, they've made extraordinary military advances. So they can deploy file firing uh, muskets, um, uh, horse artillery, ballistics, all this sort of stuff against the moguls. And meanwhile, the Mughal Empire has broken up. So rather than facing one enormous adversary, they're facing a whole tiny succession of, uh, of city-states. Uh, and they go through it like a knife through butter. Uh, and the first big conquests, well, there's, there's some provisional skirmishes in the 1740s, uh, often with the English East India Company um, uh, shadowing the activities of the French East India Company, the Company des Indes. Uh, and these two are, are messing around in the 1740s together. But by the 1750s, the English East India Company has taken a, a clear lead and it seized Bengal, which is the single richest uh, province. Uh, and uh, the man in charge of this is this incredible, uh, 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 well, he's the villain, really, of my book. He's the Lord Voldemort of this tale, uh, and he's called Robert Clive. And this is a man who generations of Englishmen have been taught to look up uh, look up to as a, uh, uh, as a national hero. His statue still stands at the back of Downing Street. Uh, but he is an incredibly ruthless operator, um, initially hired by Indian bankers to get rid of a Nawab they didn't like, uh, he then just runs with it, and having seen how effective European military technology is against these armies, he just carries on going. And within another ten years, he's conquered the whole of uh, the Gangetic Plain, and brought the Mughal Empire, Mughal Emperor, and two provincial governors in Bengal and Lucknow to, to their knees. And then you have this sort of corporate asset stripping. It's like a, a you know, a, 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 in the 1980s when one of those big corporations would, would swoop in on, on some small innocent business uh, and, and just take away all its assets and sell it for profit. That's what happens, but on a vast continental scale uh, in mid-18th century India. And Clive is this brilliant, uh, ruthless, completely cold-blooded uh, character 
who realizes that uh, uh, he can do more or less what he likes. When he when he um, walks into the treasury of the Nawab of Bengal, having defeated him in battle, he just fills his pockets with jewels that are lying around in great heaps. And when he's later brought before Parliament and asked, you know, who gave him permission to do this? Well, how on earth did he think he could do this? He just replied, my lords, I was astonished. I stand astonished at my own moderation. Uh, so you get the kind of character. <laughs> you, you, wrote, you, you wrote an opinion piece calling for the taking down of that Robert Clive statue at Downey Hall. Absolutely right. And because, you know, according to our contemporary lights, this man, far from being an imperial hero, A, he wasn't really representing the British government at all. He was representing a commercial company. Uh, and B, uh, he was indirectly responsible for about three million people starving to death uh, during the Great Bengal Famine, uh, which took place immediately after he'd left India. Uh, but as a result of many of the policies that he put into order, um, he, uh, three million people are killed, and uh, the East India Company, in order to gather the taxes that it needs to operate, despite these people starving to death, sends its uh, soldiers out into the countryside to gather taxes. Anyone that can't pay is hung. Uh, and there's no question of starting soup kitchens or feeding the, the poor or anything. These guys are left in, in enormous, emaciated mountains, dying in the streets. Uh, there are, you know, Indian powers nearby do set up soup kitchens in Lucknow, where the, uh, a local Nawab, uh, he builds an enormous building that's still there called the uh, the uh, the Ashrakana uh, near the near the Rumeli Gate, uh, and uh, he employs I don't know many hundreds of thousands of people on a pittance a day and, and, and arranges soup kitchens to feed them all, just to keep them all alive. But the company, because it's a company, doesn't see it as its job to look after starving people. Uh, and these people just die when very easy, a small, a few shipments of grain up and down the rivers would have very easily sorted it out. And when, and this is the crucial point, when the annual general meeting takes place the next year and the shareholders of the East India Company are told what's happened, there's been a famine, but we gathered the full tax uh, nonetheless, they vote themselves an increase in the dividend from 10 to 12 and a half percent over the bodies of about three to six million dead Bengalis. Uh, so this, this is seventeen. This, this is seventeen seventy seven when the famine. This occurred. is seventeen seventy two. Seventeen seventy two. Uh, when this happened, yeah. yeah. Uh, and what happens next is very interesting, and again something that has many contemporary echoes. Uh, and that is that the the company one year on, you know, the cupboard is completely bare. They you know they've they've successfully pulled every last rupee out of every hiding place the year before, but there is nothing more, and everyone's starving, uh, and so no one's working. So the following year. They don't get any tax receipts in at all. And the share price of the company collapses. It's a bit like the subprime uh, situation a decade ago. And uh, what you then get is the company being partly taken over by the government. 50% of the shares are bought by the government. Uh, so it's a bit like, it, it, unlike Lehman Brothers, the East India Company is too big to fail. Uh, and uh, and it becomes this partly nationalized, partly free market, uh, uh, private. I, what would you call it? It's a public-private partnership. I suppose yeah. something like that. Too, too big to fail because uh, so much of the economy now is based on what the East India Company is doing. By this stage, the East India Company is the biggest employer in Britain. It employs, you know, sailmakers, shipbuilders, as well as clerks and warehousemen and what have you, as well as all the soldiers and administrators sent out to India. And uh, 
it controls about half the imports into Britain. So it's a massive chunk of the economy. It's bigger than Tesla, Google, and Microsoft combined. Uh, uh, and what's fascinating is that just like today, you know, what's, what I love about the story, just to go back, I suppose, one step. What I love about the story is that it combines two of the great stories, really, uh, of our times. One is the whole story of colonialism and its aftermath. The story of how the, all these European empires went out conquered chunks of the globe, looted them, uh, and brought the wealth back home. And the legacy that's left in, 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 across the world, from which, in a sense, we're just recovering. But secondly, it's also the story of big corporations. Uh, and that is a very contemporary story. We are anxious about the way that uh, Google uh, data, uh, harvests our data, the way that it uh, reads our emails. You know, probably tomorrow you're going to start getting uh, adverts on your Facebook feed for East India Company teas or good curries or something after we've had this conversation. <laughs> um, and this is a big, you know, this is not a, an entirely baseless uh, worry by, for many people today that their data, their mails and everything are being read. And you can argue, <coughs> sure, the East India Company had 200,000 soldiers and, and, and ships and cannon and what have you. But uh, Tesla and Microsoft and Google don't need that. Uh, they already have uh, annual turnovers that are bigger than the GDPs of, of most nations in the world uh, without, ever, um, without ever needing to have an army. They, they, they just spy on us all and, uh, uh, and harvest our data. Uh, so it's a very, I, I mean, I, what I have loved about the story, I've been writing on the East India Company for 20 years now. I've written uh, four books, of which we've talked about some before on your show. Uh, and uh, but this anarchy, in a sense, is the summation of the whole thing, because this is the story of how one multinational corporation, almost the first multinational corporation in history, grows to be this this le leviathan, uh, uh, engulfing world trade, controlling about half the world economy at its peak. This is Letters and Politics, and we are in conversation about the history of the East India Company. Our guest for this conversation is William Dalrymple. He is the author of the book, The Anarchy, The East India Company, Corporate Violence, and the Pillage of an Empire. Would you say this is also the beginning of a powerful corporate lobby in government? Well, very good point. So what you get at this stage is a lot of the things we worry most about with corporations. First of all, of course, is corporate corruption. 1690, 90 years into the history of this company, the governor is arrested and thrown into the Tower of London. Why? Because he's been caught bribing parliamentarians with money to extend the company's monopoly. In the first case of its kind in world history, a corporation has given money to, uh, to MPs, uh, to, to, the, to the legislature, uh, in order to uh, uh, achieve a, 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 an economic goal of its own. And after that, you know, there are more subtle ways uh, of, of control. Many East India Company men who've made their fortunes in India and, and shipped them home to, um, to, to Britain then become MPs on, uh, on their retirement from the company. And the company has its own uh, uh, body of MPs who are its own personnel, uh, each with their own rotten borough by the, by the mid-18th century or end of the 18th century. And... Uh, Beyond that, half the MPs in Parliament have got East India Company shares, uh, and so are not going to vote to uh, damage their own financial well-being. 
And so you set up for the first time in history something that's very familiar to us today, the power of the state against the power of the corporation. Uh, in this case, the state wins. In, in 1858, having gradually seized more and more of the company, uh, the company is rolled up uh, and replaced by the British Raj. Uh, but uh, who knows in our own time? Uh, you know, as I say, the, there is a, a rich history. You could write another whole book about the, the story of corporations that have brought down states. Think, for example, uh, 1956, Mossadegh in Iran. Uh, the this first is the Anglo-Persian company. Yeah, the Anglo-Persian uh, Anglo oil company brings about a, a, a coup with the aid of the CIA and MI6 uh, because they think that the Persians are going to uh, nationalize Anglo-Persian oil. Two years later, similar thing in Guatemala, United Fruit, uh, which worries that uh, a socialist government in Guatemala is going to uh, seize all its land with, uh, with nationalization, um, brings about a coup and a right-wing government is installed by the CIA and the term Banana Republic is born. 1977, ITT and uh, Salvador Allende is, is thrown out in, uh, uh, in Chile and a right-wing government pro-business pro is, is replaced. So, you know, there is this long history of this, in a sense, this secret war uh, between the power of the state and the power of the corporation. But the East India Company is the first time that these battle lines are formed. And not only does the East India Company bring down government after government in India, it also does its best uh, to exert its influence and undermine the power of parliament in England. Uh, in the end, parliament wins in this case. But in the longer term, who knows whether uh, mm. corporations like Tesla and Google and Facebook and so on are going to become more powerful than, than, uh, th than the government of the United States. They're certainly already more powerful than many third world countries. Which, uh, and so you find many, you know, you find that in weaker states already corporations exert uh, uh, often a very baleful influence on the health of the state. Well, was there a power struggle between the state and the company when very much uh, so. the and, state and, 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 Yeah, and, and you get these occasions when, the, you know, the power, uh, the company uses its muscle to, to, to get various votes through parliament uh, to get the state to support it. Because... You know, for example, during various wars, the uh, the company needs the power of the Royal Navy and so on to support it. Uh, but often when those wars are over, the company will hang on to its winnings uh, without giving them to the state to run. It'll be part of its empire rather than the state. Uh, and it's only in 1858 that all these East India Company possessions are, are, are handed over to the administration of the Foreign Office and, and the Commonwealth Department. Again, I just want to really underline this point, we all know about the long history of British colonialism in India, but it seems something like, my math may be off, but it seems something like two-thirds of that period of time, it was done by a private corporation. Your math is dead on, uh, Mitchell, you've got it exactly right. 250 years, 1600 to 1858 uh, is corporate rule, and 90 years only is the famous Raj. You know, whenever we think of the British in India, we think of all those movies of uh, uh, Gandhi or the jewel in the crown or, you know, uh, passage to India with all those guys in solar topis and women in crinoline dresses waltzing over Bangalore club lawns and croquet with Maharajas and elephants. All that stuff is actually only 90 years. And before that, it's the corporate rule of the East India Company for 250 years. Very painful. And But I mean, for the British... It's a wonderful thing because 
uh, Britain, you know, the Elizabethan period is, is, is rising, but it's still really peripheral to the main action in Europe. Uh, England, uh, sorry, Italy and France are very rich, but the big new money spinners are Spain and Portugal, bringing in the gold from the new world. England is on the edge of all that. But by 1900, with two sources of income, first of all, the looting of India, but secondly, the Caribbean slave trade, England has vaulted over its continental rivals and is now the leading economic power uh, throughout the 19th century in the world. Uh, and, that, and, and, and that's what provides the seed fund for the Industrial Revolution, which further enriches Britain. Uh, but but the, the kickoff, the money that starts the whole thing is this looting of India and millions of pounds a year are sent back from India. Some of it, you know, legitimate trade. Uh, there's an awful lot of trade in textiles and spices. And, uh, and, and then, uh, then there follows this period when uh, the East India Company turns into the largest narco operator in history. Um, we think of the Medellin cartel. The East India Company was a far larger and far more sophisticated uh, drug runner. They the grow opium wars with China. Exactly that. They grow opium in Bengal, which after they've conquered it, they sell it illegally in China. And with the money that they get in China, they buy tea, which they sell in India, Europe, and as we said, uh, in, in Boston and the rest of America. And the war was a free market war. In other words, China was saying no more opium here. And the, the East India companies uh, was forcing, or maybe it was Great Britain at the time, I, my, my timeline. Great Britain by that stage, 1842, yeah. that they are, they are waving the flag of free trade, despite the fact that the trade they're trying to, uh, to force on the Chinese is, is narcotics, is opium. It's, uh, you know, it's the equivalent of the, uh, uh, the meddling cartel trying to feed Florida with coke. Uh, and uh, uh, it's very much that story. And, and the East India Company makes a bomb. It is the largest narco operator in history. You know, um, Pablo Escobar could have learned many lessons from the East India Company. It's interesting to think about colonialism beginning with a corporation. But even if we look at the history of the United States, I think we could say it begins with a corporation, the Virginia Company. Correct. Absolutely correct. Rhode Island Company, Hudson Bay Company. And this was the way of Elizabethan, early Elizabethan imperialism, partly because the British state was not so, or the English state at that stage, was not so very strong. Uh, there was not a vast army. There were not the resources to uh, raise cash to you know, put hundreds of thousands of men into the field or, or raise enormous armies. So a lot of the early raiding, for example, of Portuguese and Spanish treasure ships doesn't happen from the, uh, the Navy. It happens from people we slightly called privateers, basically pirates, like Drake and Raleigh, uh, preying on, on, on Spanish and Portuguese shipping. Uh, and um, there are a whole load of companies that all the slave trade initially is, is, is run out of something called the Royal Africa Company, which famously, and this is something which you know, people bring up more and more, the, of which the Crown was a heavy investor. Uh, and... Um, so, yes, the, the state is not the uh, initial organ of British imperialism at all. Uh, the East India Company is one of a number of corporations which are chartered by, uh, by private individuals uh, with uh, basically certificates from the Crown, uh, which gives them permission to start these things up. And the Virginia Company, the Rhode Island Company, the Hudson Bay Company in America, uh, the Royal Africa Company, the slaving company in, 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 operating to Africa. And the East India Company with control of everything east of the Cape. 
what more enormously can... powerful com companies with 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 you know with vast resources the, the royal africa company what more can you tell me about that royal africa company was again a sort of contemporary of the east india company um and it started off with uh, trading and a variety of different things to africa it was selling i think initially arms and uh, various baubles to african uh, elites but very soon got into the business of buying human beings uh, and uh, shipping them both to the americas and to uh, the caribbean on the way wiping out many of the indigenous peoples uh, of the caribbean the caribs uh, get wiped out uh, and the, the uh, and, and the middle passage this terrible inhuman uh, shipment of human beings from africa to Caribbean slave plantations where they are beaten and broken and made to work on the plantations. But this, of course, is very profitable. And uh, the money gets channeled back to England. Uh, Jamaica makes far more money for the British than the whole of the Americas at the time of the revolution. And, and the big worry in London is not, is not Yorktown and Washington and the fall of America, which was, was certainly a humiliation. But economically, the far bigger worry was that uh, Jamaica might go too. Uh, and a lot of the resources that Britain has to deploy uh, are spent to guard the Garapians. Coming back to India, just before Great Britain nationalizes the East India Company, it, there, there's an uprising against the East Correct. India Company in India. Tell me about that uprising. So this is uh, uh, the subject of a previous book, which I think I spoke with you before, Mitch, uh, about uh, a book called The Last Mughal. Uh, and this is the last of these four books that I produced on the East India Company. Anarchy, chronologically, is the first. White Moguls is the second. A Return of a King about the East India Company invading Afghanistan is the third. Uh, and the fourth and final one, bringing the story to its closure, is the last Mughal. And it isn't just any old uprising that you're referring to. It's the largest anti-colonial uprising in colonial history. Uh, the Still? British call it the Indian Mutiny. Uh, and uh, the Indians uh, now refer it to as the First War of Independence. The truth is somewhere in between that. I use the, the, the great uprising as a, as a kind of neutral term in the middle. And it's an extraordinary business. The East India Company sepoys, these, these Indian soldiers working for British masters who've had enough by 1857, rise up against their own officers. It's not, you know, it's not the princes of India principally. It's not the peasants. It's not the tribals. So all those peoples play some part in it. Uh, it is the East India Company's own troops which turn their guns on their officers, then march to Delhi and try and put the Mughal Emperor, Bahadur Zafar, on the throne. Tragically, the Mughal Emperor at this stage is a wonderful poet, a great uh, uh, commissioner of wonderful paintings and, uh, and a great artist. But he's no Che Guevara, which is what you need in this situation. And um, through lack of leadership, above all, uh, these hundreds of thousands of sepoys who fail to unite over a, to, under a single general and fight their own little wars uh, are eventually starved out. And in September 1857, the British gather, uh, the East India Company gathers another army from tribal levies in the northwest frontier, along with some Sikh troops in the Punjab. And it comes down to Delhi and it massacres the population of Delhi. Males, every male over the age of 16 is considered fair game and shot. And uh, we, no one knows the true scale of the atrocities and the violence which follow the end of this, but certainly into the hundreds of thousands of civilians killed. Uh, and this is such a mess and also such an enormous sort of financial uh, uh, screw up 
that um, the East India Company is rolled up in 1858 and replaced by the British Raj. Lord Canning goes to Allahabad Fort, which is an old Mughal fort where the uh, uh, one of the important first treaties, the Treaty of Allahabad, which took over these territories initially from the Mughal Emperor in uh, 1765, that's where the companies rolled up uh, uh, 1858, 200 years later, 100 years later. Is it just the, 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 the British Empire now at this time, or does it, does it transform into a particular arm of the government, department? Yeah, this is, this, is the, um, this is the period. 1858, you really get the um, uh, beginning of the British Empire proper in, in its sort of most familiar form. Uh, America's long gone. Uh, but this is the this is the uh, the empire of of Queen Victoria, uh, and uh, it's a very profitable operation for the British. Uh, the British always like to pretend that it's that it's all for the good of the the colonized, but uh, few historians today uh, take that view uh, because you know all the all the raw materials are shipped down to the coast, shipped off back to Britain, and all this finances the Industrial Revolution, which hugely enriches Britain. Before the arrival of the East India Company into India, India, as you mentioned, is perhaps the most in, uh, the wealthiest place in the world. At the well, end of all this, it, it's one of the poorest. Exactly right. They, I mean, the, crudely speaking, the, the statistics are this, that India produces um, around 40% of world GDP in 1650, when the company is just getting going. England at that stage has about 7%. In 1947, uh, when, when the British Empire is rolled up after the Second World War, those figures are more or less reversed. Uh, India's down to single digits, contribution to the world economy, and Britain is, is, is you know, between a quarter and a half. Uh, and so it's a, it, it's, a very, uh, uh, it's a very straightforward argument, I think, to show that however much the British might like to regard their empire as benign, certainly better than those of the Belgian or the French or uh, at the end of the day, uh, it was run for Britain and it, it, and it did greatly increase the prosperity of Britain, gave it also enormous military resources. A lot of the soldiers who fought in the first and the second world war were from India and the rest of the empire. Uh, and uh, it enormously hobbled India, which is in a sense only beginning to recover now, 75 years later. So it sounds like there is no British empire without India. There's no British global dominance without India. This is an era of European colonial powers. Were there any other European powers that were trying to get into India? Well, at the beginning, there'd been a great deal. The first there were the Dutch. Um, sorry, the first there were the Portuguese who, who founded a, a, a sea-based empire uh, with uh, a base in Goa. Uh, but other bases around the Indian Ocean, places like Hormuz and uh, uh, and a whole variety of forts across the uh, Indian Ocean. The next up, the Dutch. The Dutch are distinguished by their incredible banking power. Uh, they basically invent the stock exchange and, and they have a whole lot of very clever financial instruments that allow them to outperform these India companies. So famously, the, the first reason that the company is formed is to take on the Dutch uh, on the spice trade. Now, this is this trade in nutmeg and cinnamon and so on, uh, which is operating out of what we today call Indonesia, but in those days were known as the East Indies. Uh, and and Banda Islands, right? There was, there was a massacre in the Banda Islands. Exactly that. And, the, and so the Dutch outperformed the company very quickly at this period, the East India Company, 
cannot keep up with the VOC, which is the uh, much more fleet, much more uh, well-financed, better-run Dutch version. Uh, and there's a famous treaty uh, made at the end of this period when the British basically pull out of the, the spice trade. Uh, and uh, in, uh, in, in one particular treaty, the island of Run, uh, uh, now part of Indonesia, a very small and forgotten area, but which at the time produced all the nutmeg in the world, is swapped for a boggy island in the Hudson River named Manhattan. Uh, and uh, and that's how Manhattan came, to, <laughs> came into British hands. A good deal in the long term. But um, so, yes, so first up the Portuguese, next up the Dutch. And then the English and the French are wrangling throughout the 18th century. The English are based out of Calcutta, uh, the French out of Pondicherry in the south. And there are, there's a moment when this character called Duple takes over the French operations when it looks like he's going to shove the British right out. This is the same period as the Seven Year War, what you call the French and Indian War, when you know, the last Mohicans is going on up in uh, uh, Lake Huron and uh, uh, all those sort of uh, conflicts uh, are, are taking place uh, in the Great Lakes. And uh, it, the, the French and the English fight it out, uh, both in the Carnatic and Bengal, and ultimately the English company beats the French. Why? Because the English company is run by merchants and is very uh, is a very ruthless capitalist organization, while the French company is run out of Versailles uh, by the French crown, and it just isn't uh, as efficient, isn't as ruthless, is run by a bunch of slightly effete aristocrats who, who can't keep up with the raw mercantile capitalism of the, of the English Institute Company. And then having finished off the French, the English East Leader Company then turns its uh, guns on the Mughal succession states. So it takes out Siraj Dawla, the Nawab of Bengal, uh, Shojo Dawla, who's the Nawab of Central, uh, what's now UP, like, uh, Avad. Uh, and then they take on Tipu Sultan, the Marathas. Uh, and there's an awful lot of military history in this book. There's, uh, there's some terrific uh, full-scale battles. Sometimes uh, Tipu Sultan is the first... Uh, Indian leader to basically use European weapons effectively against the Europeans uh, and, and, and better, has better rifles, has better guns. Uh, he, uh, he outperforms the, 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 the British with cavalry maneuvers and so on. And for a while, it looks as if Tipu might take on the company. But he, by this stage, it's too late because he just doesn't have the resources that the company has. The company has now such deep pockets because it sees Bengal, which is the money bags of, of Mughal India, a million looms churning out cloth that could be taxed every year. So Tipu fights very bravely and very efficiently and very effectively, but he just hasn't got the financial resources you need to take on the company by the stage. And then there's a final conflict with a group of people called the Marathas, very famous in India today, regarded as the archetypal Indian nationalists and Hindu nationalists. Uh, these are peasant cavalrymen fighting from the uplands of Maharashtra above Bombay. Uh, and they do a lot of the dismantling of the Mughal Empire. Uh, and they are also extremely fierce fighters. And the Duke of Wellington, who as a young man, Arthur Wellesley, is sent off to fight Marathas. And when he loses three quarters of his troops uh, in two engagements against the Marathas, he at the end of his career says it was a much tougher fight than it was against Napoleon. Uh, Waterloo is nothing compared to these battles. Uh, but uh, it, is, it, it, is, it is a very close-run contest. But in the end, the company ceases. One still out of, operating out of one building in, in the city of London, Leadenhall Street, under what's now the Lloyds Building, uh, the famous Richard Rogers structure from the 1980s, 
underneath that, uh, in the vaults, are the uh, the groaning chambers of the East India Company still there. William Dalrymple, you live in India. Uh, getting back to this dynamic of India being the wealthiest place in the world before the East India Company, and then after the British leave in 1948, one of the poorest places in the world, uh, was were there reparations with independence? And do people still talk about reparations in India today? So at the time, nothing. No, absolutely not. And uh, the British very successfully spin a narrative that, uh, uh, you know, the British came to India that was broken and disunited and fractured and formed a single nation uh, and gave it civilization and railways. Uh, today, uh, post-colonial scholars scoff uh, rightly uh, at, at what is effectively British propaganda uh, and point out that, in, that India, while it was certainly uh, in a period of civil war, was you know, enormously civilized, enormously rich. Um, I mean, throughout most of history, world manufacturing has been dominated by one of two countries. It's either China or it's India. Uh, in the early Middle Ages, it's mainly China. Uh, by the 18th century, uh, it's mainly India. Um, and we're, you know, we're now returning to a world where that is again uh, becoming a fact. Uh, we're seeing every day the, the power of China growing, both technological and, and economic. Um, and India is way behind China still. But uh, I think in our lifetimes, we will see the rise of the rupee and the rise of Indian power. That's uh, interesting. Uh, you, yeah. you have a line in your book that, that you reminded me of. It says this, quote, almost single-handedly, it, meaning East India Company, reversed the balance trade, which from Roman times on had led to a continual drain of Western bullion eastwards. So usually, wealth, historically speaking, wealth flowed in the opposite direction um, until the East India Company that seemed to reverse that flow. But now you're saying looks like it's reversing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm funny enough, the book I'm writing now, I, the, I, I finished the East India Company um, uh, three years ago. I mean, it's only just now coming out in paperback. Uh, but the book I'm writing now is the story of the early period. And, and I've been reading a lot of letters, for example, by Pliny, uh, writing in the years before uh, Pompeii. Um, in the in the in the 70s uh, AD, um, about sort of what 40 years after Christ uh, was crucified, uh, and uh, he's writing about uh, he's he's very angry about the amount of Roman gold which is being lost to India because of the exotic tastes of of immoral Roman women who want to be seen in diaphanous uh, silks and saris who want to uh, rub their bodies with unguents and sandalwood coming from India. Uh, and who want to uh, hang, hang Indian jewels around their neck and, uh, and, and around their arms. Uh, and uh, Pliny is not just sounding off in a sort of madcap, uh, sort of retrograde way. Um, we've seen the evidence. The archaeologists digging now in, uh, in Roman Egypt have found uh, a variety of papyri that give the figures for this. And um, in Vienna, there's a papyrus that was found in Roman Egypt that has just been uh, translated. And it tells how um, one shipment from India um, was enough to buy you, uh, uh, you know, the largest belt of farmland in, in Roman Egypt. And the tax from the India trade paid for one third of the entire Roman army 
So the customs duty coming in from the trade with India was enough to pay for a third of the entire Roman army, stretching from Hadrian's Wall to uh, to southern Egypt and Algeria. Oh, that, so that gives you a picture of the wealth that's being generated by India at this period. And this is the reason the company goes to India, because it's a very rich place. Today, we tend to think of India as a rather poor place. We think of it, you know, beggars and, and poverty. But uh, that is, in, in many ways, the legacy of colonialism and something which is beginning to end in our own day. William Dalrymple has been our guest. He has joined us for a conversation on the history of the East India Company. He is the author of the book called The Anarchy, The East India Company, Corporate Violence, and the Pillage of an Empire. William Dalrymple, I found that a very fascinating conversation, and I thank you for taking this time to talk to us today. Thanks, Mitch. It's always a pleasure.